Uh, good evening. Hey, uh, I'm glad you came out tonight. Appreciate you coming and excited to see what God might do uh, with our discussion. This is uh, the panel that I've been speaking to you about. Uh, to my far right, Chad Ragsdale, you get, many of you know Chad, a member of our congregation and preaches quite often here and teaches on Wednesday night. Chad is a professor of New Testament and hermeneutics at uh, Ozark Christian College, also the assistant uh, academic dean. And what that simply means is he's their boss. So uh, I'm sure there's no way they're going to, yeah, exactly. They should have stood when he walked in, but we'll work on that later. In the center is Shane Wood, and Shane is a professor of New Testament at Ozark. Uh, and we love Shane, even though he attends College Heights. And so uh, uh, we're going to offer grace tonight in a peace treaty, if we're going to handle it that way. And to my direct right is Michael DeFazio, and he is a brand new professor, uh, although some of you who have been here a few years might remember that Michael interned at Christ Church a long, long time ago when he was a wee boy and uh, helped we with left. small groups and worked with Jim Johnson in that area and served. And, and uh, I just know I'm excited. I met Michael and Shane a long time ago when they were interns, with Christ and youth, they were just little guys and running around. Well, I guess Michael wasn't. His wife worked for CIY, but he hung around this really cute girl named Beth, and so it uh, made sense to me. But I've appreciated all three of these guys. They're very, very intelligent. But as we talk about here quite often, this is very, very important. Uh, intelligence that's not centered on finding God is a waste of time. And I think what you will know about these three guys is they love the Lord. And because they love the Lord, their intelligence has a fruitfulness to it that I appreciate to learn from them, to study from them, uh, and just to grow. And I think it's kind of interesting that we would have a crowd like this on a Sunday night because we all have these deep questions about, is there something I'm missing? Is there something I need to know? And what does the Bible really say outside of, of some of the theories that are uh, purported out there for us to understand? But the best thing I can do besides be quiet is pray. And then I'm going to launch some questions at these guys that have come in from Twitter and email and text and so forth. What I would ask you to do is I'm going to go and station myself to my right, to your left, on the front edge of this front row. Okay? Just look for the shining bald head and you'll find me in the middle of the dark. All right? If you have a question that you did not already pose or you're interested in, please don't be embarrassed. I think the easiest way to do this is to have you come up and speak to me right over there. And then when I stand up and walk toward these guys, they're going to know we have another question to go. Okay? So you can come see me on the side. I'll do the very best I can. We're going to try to do as many questions as we can. And I've told these guys, they have a little bit of concern that they might talk too long on a subject matter. And I would rather have them expound on it so we understand it than to, to answer briefly and leave more questions. Amen, if you agree with that? All right, okay. So we want to deal with this the best we can. And they are professors, so we can cut them off if we need to. We'll just ring a bell. All the students stand up and go to your next class, all right? <laughs> this is how this works. Okay, let me pray, and then the comedy club's over, and we'll get to work. Jesus, we love you, and it's because of your sacrifice and your gift of life, what you did on the cross and the power of the resurrection that changed everything for every single one of us. And so because of that tonight, Jesus, we want this to be about you. And as much as I appreciate these three men, their scholarship, their study, their passion for the church, um, I want to pray and ask that uh, you will allow their voices to speak of you, their minds to be united, that the scriptures would come to them, that the Holy Spirit would lead them to be able to express clearly uh, so that we can not only know but grow and understand. As we said this morning, may the word of life speak and may we be changed because we've encountered it. For all of these things and just our, our hope and belief that your Holy Spirit 
can change our mind and instruct us and guide us and lead us, we're very confident that tonight will be well used. And so, Lord, may your will be done, and may you uh, give us the opportunity tonight to know you more, love you more, and cherish your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, the first question. And uh, Michael, I'm going to throw it to you and let you begin. Uh, When it comes to end times events, what is critical for us to have an accurate understanding of what we're talking about? What do we need to keep in mind, and how do we need to focus on that? Yeah, it's such a good question. First of all, let me say thanks for uh, the invite. It's good to be here with you guys. It's so great to see this many people interested in uh, conversations like this. So props to you for being here. I know we're very much looking forward to to chatting with you. Uh, that's a good question because um, at different points in our journey, we feel that certain things have ramped it up from like important to essential, you know? And so it's always, it's valuable if you want to live a wise life to distinguish between those two. And when it comes to the essentials, it's really the things you guys have been hearing these last few weeks. Um, The Bible is pretty clear and consistent uh, from the New Testament point of view that Jesus is coming back. When he gets here, he will bring restoration to creation and he will uh, cut out all that cannot be restored, which in terms of our own lives means we're going to be held accountable for what it is that we're doing. Mark's been preaching that quite well. So what's most important to know is that Jesus is returning and that all of us will be held accountable in the moment when he gets here. Um, really, beyond that, um, there are a lot of things that are important but not essential. So they all fall into that second category. And I know a lot of those are going to be what we're talking about. But again, the main thing is the things you've been hearing preached on these weekends. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, we now know what's going to happen, and specifically that we're going to answer for every single moment that we've lived our lives. So um, I want to keep it short on this first one. I know he said, feel free to, to, talk to talk as long as we want, but on the first one, let me keep it at that. And then as we go through tonight, part of what we'll probably be doing with some of these questions is saying, hey, here's how important this one is, because some of the questions really do touch on a very, very crucial issues, whereas others are important but a little bit less essential. So yeah, that'd be my answer to that question. Shane, do you want to add? No, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> you might be that was muted. great. All right, uh, <laughs> academic dean uh, Ragsdale. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I was, I was muted. So it's a little professor's on the top. There we go. go. Is this, on, is this recording, by the way? Got it now. That was Chad. Uh, I, I don't know. I would add a whole lot to that other than, um, like Michael said, there are a lot of a lot of issues, sub-issues related to this topic that are very worthwhile to talk about, very important to talk about. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, could be a distraction as well. Um, but I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of any discussion like this because I believe that it's so terribly important. I, I, really, I really believe that the way you see any story ending will affect the way that you live your life right now. So it's very important for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, to have a clear idea, uh, to, to have a clear hope, to have a clear expectation um, concerning, concerning our future, concerning our hope, concerning the things that we've been promised in Scripture, uh, because that will affect the way that we conduct our lives right here and right now. Um, so discussions like this are, are critically important um, for us. And uh, I, I don't think I would add anything other than that, um, that one little point. Okay. We were talking backstage, and Shane, I'll uh, start this one with you. There's a lot of popular theories up there that, have can, that are confusing to people today. Mm-hmm. And they're not as historically, uh, have a long view historically, as we might believe. One of the things we talked about in, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 
and referencing the book of Revelation is that particular style of writing is very, very unique. Mm -hmm. And I know that you teach on this regularly. Uh, What would you say to us in our interpretation of Matthew 24 and 25 in Revelation? Mm -hmm. What are some of the key components to interpret that holistically throughout all scripture? Yeah, that's great. Uh, For me, uh, the most important thing that you can get out of when you're approaching Revelation, when you're approaching Matthew 24, 25, or even the end times talks in general, um, is learn how to ask the right questions. Um, and that's important to me for this very reason. Uh, when you have a newspaper and you open up a newspaper, let's say, um, to, the, uh, to a particular section, and the headline that you see says, Tigers Massacre Indians. Now, based on what section of the newspaper you're in, it will determine what questions make sense and which ones mm-hmm. absolutely don't. So for example, if you're in the international section, then some of the questions I'd be thinking is, um, are any of my missionary friends affected? Because the way I would interpret that is there's some people that are native to the continent of India that were massacred by some tigers. But now if I'm in the local section, my thought is, are they still loose? Like my, my questions shift because I don't know where it is, but if there's tigers loose and they're massacring people, not politically correct in the title, but Indians, <laughs> uh, then I wanna know where they're at. But if I'm in the sports section, then my question becomes, what's the score? Whenever it comes to um, apocalyptic literature, Matthew 24, 25, Revelation, a lot of times I hear people asking, what's the score, even though we're in the international section? And that's part of the problem. Sometimes your questions can be taken care of if you just know what section of the newspaper you're in. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, honestly, it's not their bad questions, it's just that the questions don't really make any sense. The Bible's not answering that question. But what I find is a lot of people, they will, they'll find answers to every question they ask, and that's sometimes part of the problem. <laughs> so you can go to the international section, you can ask the question, what's the score of the baseball game? And you'll find an answer. You can't. But that's just not what that section of the newspaper is wanting to talk about. So my question back is, or my, my um, I guess, encouragement would be, maybe we should start asking the question, what questions is the Bible asking? And maybe once we ask that question, we can hear those answers and then determine whether or not my question even makes sense in this section of the newspaper. Does that make sense on any level? Okay, that would be my number one thing I would say. If we can get that down, a lot of this stuff starts to take care of itself. Okay, so what is Jesus doing in Matthew 24 and 25 that Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit would have us remember and recall and be useful to us? What Mm -hmm. questions is it asking and answering? I actually think that what I just said is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, 25. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 3, it begins with a question. The disciples ask a question. It's a very interesting question because it's a question that conflates two events into one. They say, when will these things happen? That is the end of the age. And Jesus says, well, the problem is your question. (laughs) You've taken the end of everything, the destruction of the temple, and you've smushed them together into one. So he says, let me answer your question by clarifying what the right question is. And he begins in the first 35 verses, and he says, the destruction of the temple is something you need to be concerned about, and let me give you some very clear signs of when this is going to happen. And he lays it out very clearly. As a matter of fact, historically, whenever we trace the different things he lists with famines, and we compare it to AD 70, it's frightening how clear it is. And when you take Matthew 24 and parallel it to Luke, man, Luke even just says, the abomination of desolations, whenever the Roman armies surround the temple, you'll know it. And the Christians did know it. Matter of fact, Eusebius tells us that whenever the Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem, uh, he says that the Christians began to abandon the city like a sinking ship. The, the Christians knew. It was clear to them. 
And then you get to verse 20, 36, Matthew 24, and Jesus says, but now let me address the other question. There are no signs of the second coming. The son doesn't even know. I mean, only the father, not the angels, not you. the son doesn't even know. And so then what is this, his exhortation in 25 is, if you get the right question, then you'll know the right answer. And his answer is, always be ready. Oh, now, there are signs for the destruction of the temple, but the son, of, the son of man, there are no signs. And that's where you have four parables in a row, one, two, three, four of it, unexpectedly the master comes back, unexpectedly the bridegroom comes back, and the, the exhortation is, so always stink and be ready. And Martin Luther was asked once, they said, he, uh, they asked him, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? He said, I'd plant my garden today so that hopefully some fruit will begin to burgeon the next day. And that's the exhortation of Matthew 24 and 25. And the whole thing begins with a question that was wrong. A question that said, well, when is the end of the age, the destruction of the temple, when's that going to happen? And Jesus says, Let me, let's ask the right question. And it leads to present living. So that, that's how I would answer Matthew 24 and 25. Is that yeah, sufficient? Bet, okay. Let me throw in a couple of thoughts on that. And yeah. that's fantastic. And you, the question that you may think is, I'm going to go home and read it again, right? And you're going to read it within that lens and you'll be reading it correctly. But you may come across some phrases and think, well, how can that mean what he said? And part of what, part of the principles that go into reading this way are, let me just mention one, because I'm thinking immediately when you go home and you're going to read before verse 35, and you're going to see that it talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and you're going to think, how is that not the second coming? Mm. And one of the principles you've got to keep in mind when reading especially apocalyptic texts in Scripture is what, um, what previous texts is it alluding to, and what is it saying with those texts? In that case, it's alluding to Daniel 7, which is all about Jesus becoming king and his king, him being vindicated and verified as king. And so in a way, what Jesus is saying there is that this is God going to be vindicating what I'm here saying. Um, but if you just read it and think, I'm just going to take the words at face value and forget what it, where it comes from, you're going to think that Shane was wrong when he was actually 100% right. So keep some of those things in mind as uh, you read through good. it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, let me just, uh, one little statistic. Piggyback, piggyback? Yeah, piggyback on the piggyback. <laughs> is, that, is that possible? Is that <laughs> right? Uh, no, but apocalyptic literature is saturated yeah. in Jewish texts. Um, 404 verses are in the book of Revelation. There's over 516 allusions to the Old Testament by my count. Mm -hmm. So my, my exhortation to people a lot of times with Revelation is, you want to understand Revelation? Read your <laughs> yeah. Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have a, there's not a really a question of what the locusts are if you know the Joel text and the Amos mm -hmm. text. It's, it's not that difficult mm -hmm. what the two witnesses are if you've read Zechariah 9. I mean, it it's actually makes quite a lot of sense. Problem is we don't know our Old Testaments. Yeah. And so we can ask a lot of crazy questions of like, oh, it's an Apache helicopter. No, no, that's... <laughs> No, read, read, read the Old Testament. Yeah. That, it, that is what gives us the, the symbolic referent for those illusions. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely, I agree 100%. And what I, always tell, uh, what I always tell my students when it comes to a book like Revelation or other apocalyptic literature, one of the, one of the basic mistakes that we make a lot of times with texts like this is we, we, um, we assume that Jesus when he spoke the words in Matthew 24, when John wrote the words in Revelation, we assumed that they were wrapping a present, putting it underneath a tree, just waiting a for 2,000 some years to pass so that mm. that present could be opened up just for us in our culture and our world today. And it's, it's natural that we would come to the text with that conclusion, but that, that causes us to read the text in some, some rather unhealthy ways. Mm. And, uh, and we we end up missing what the text meant in our, in our desire to fast forward and, and to reflect on what it means for us today. What I always tell my students is a text can't mean anything for us mm -hmm. today that it didn't mean for the original audience. 
And, uh, and so it takes some work to get into that original setting, to understand. I compare the book of Revelation to a political cartoon. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if we were to open up um, a newspaper today and we were to see an elephant talking to a donkey, you, we wouldn't necessarily have to have anyone come along and teach us what those symbols meant because they're from our culture, they're from our world, we get it. But if someone were to come along 2,000 years from now without any sort of cultural background and saw an elephant talking to a donkey, they'd think we were crazy. Like, what in the world? Donkeys talking to elephants, you know? Um, and so that, that's some of our struggle with some of the pictures and some of the images, especially of a book like Revelation, is we've got to do that, that work of getting into the biblical world to understand those pictures, those images, the Old Testament background, um, to understand what it would have meant to that original audience. One of the things that you guys, that I appreciate about you, many things there are, but one I want to point out is you guys are all embedded in the church. And, you know, when you can take the academy away from the church, it's a dangerous proposition. When you bring the intelligence and research of the academy into the church, then all of a sudden it's helpful. So as three pastors, what can you encourage us with tonight if you pop some of the bubbles that we're holding on to very gently? But there's, there's issues that have been brought up not to be a know-it-all, but these issues make people uncomfortable because they were taught that previously. Or, And the question was raised even in the back room, if I can steal one of your lines, you're so young. How dare you tell us that what we've known for 60 years is yeah, inaccurate? No uh, what's a pastoral word to us that we can be gently persuaded from the use of Scripture to let go of some of these gentle bubbles that we've held on and caressed for so long? I, I, I go back to, um, to a text, actually, in, in Acts chapter 1, um, and it's a really subtle, it's, it's a really subtle thing that happens in Acts chapter 1, but Jesus ascends up into the clouds um, in Acts chapter 1, and um, he had just given his disciples their mission, their ministry. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses uh, in your hometown, but eventually even around the world, you're going to be my witnesses. He had just given them that commissioning, really that promise, and then he ascends up, and, and there's this text, it's almost funny in a way, but the disciples are there kind of just gaping up, trying to figure out what happened. They're looking up at the clouds, and some angels appear, and they snap them out of it. And basically, the message is, you've got a job to do. Your job isn't to be gaping up into the clouds. You're, you've been given a mission. You've been given a purpose by your Lord right here, right now. And I think when it comes to end-time stuff, of which all three of us are passionate about, we're passionate about end-times theology. We're passionate about the study of the end-times. But... The purpose of studying the end times is not to distract us from our mission, as, it's, as sometimes happens, where we get all caught up in conspiracies and uh, the latest internet rumors floating around, codes and all these, you know, novels being written. We get all caught up in this, and we're sort of like the disciples gaping up in the heavens, and we're missing really how the story of hope the story of God's promise impacts us in our ministry and in our lives and our families right now. Um, and so we allow these sorts of things, these sorts of conspiracy, fantastic things, uh, speculative things, we allow them to actually distract us from our ministry as a church instead of emboldening us and informing our ministry as a church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I think... Um Pastorally, I, I, I like to say this at the beginning of really um, 
any sort of eschatology, end times types talk, and that is, uh, listen, I don't have it all figured out. Um, I've read a couple books on it, even written a couple things on it, uh, but I don't have it all figured out. And frankly, that's one of the reasons why I'm so thankful for the community. I mean, I, I think it is your job to help me continue to figure this out. And I, I, I assume that's part of my job too. We're doing this together. I think it's one of the greatest gifts God gave us was the church so that we can study this stuff and pursue church, truth in community. Um, and so part of this is saying, listen, you can disagree with me. That's okay. We can still be friends, at least from my perspective. You can think that you leave here and just say, well, I think he's completely wrong on this. But hopefully the blood of Jesus is stronger than our disagreement. And this is one of the things that blows my mind is I'm going, shouldn't the church be the absolute quintessential example of what disagreement looks like and still unity? Mm-hmm. And yet we consistently prove that theory to be wrong. So this is a good opportunity for us. Man, disagree with me. That's great. But if it disrupts our unity, then something's gone amok. Something's wrong. So disagree with me. But so number one, I usually always lay on two round rules. Like disagree, it's great. Number one, let's just do it respectfully. Mm-hmm. And number two, you got to tell me why. Um, I, I, don't, I don't like getting emails that just say, you're wrong. It's like, well, my goodness, I know that. Like, like tell me why I'm wrong. Like, tell me where I'm wrong so I can change. Like, but don't just tell me you're wrong. Why? Because I said so. Well, okay. I mean, I, I actually think you're probably right. And my wife can give a testimony to that. Like, but if, if we're in community trying to do this together, I'd, I'd, I'd appreciate you telling me why so that I can change too. Um, so at the outset of this, I would just say, when it comes to eschatology, a lot of times there is more questions than there are answers, and hopefully they're the right questions. Um, but when we do come to some conclusions, some answers, let's at least hold it with the humility that Jesus did um, and use it as a means to unify us so that we can continue the mission that, that uh, Chad pointed out. And I think uh, I'd say a couple things. You know, with this issue, one of the things that we, we see from pastoral standpoint is uh, a lot of anxiety, you know, about what we, about beliefs about the end times being challenged. There's this, it's almost like, it's not just that, that we have this mental objection. It's like, you can feel like the red coming up. You know what I mean? Um, and I think there's a couple of things that are helpful to think through that. One is a little bit more of a historical point, And then the other one I would say is probably a little more purely pastoral. From a historical standpoint, one of the, one of the reasons I think people are anxious about having their end times beliefs challenged. Let's say you come in here and you're like full on, like I love left behind and that's what I believe. And I've been, I've like, I've, I'm, I'm, I don't like the sermons lately and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And you're looking at us thinking, how? Yeah, hey, uh, Michael, move on. <laughs> right? What do you say? Forward, pass forward, pass forward. Exactly. Um, you're thinking, this is what everybody I know believes. This is what I've been taught my whole life. How are you people coming along and telling me all of a sudden that this is wrong? And you need a little bit of, a little bit of a, maybe a backing up historically with these specific issues and to basically know that this whole popular way of thinking eschatologically in America is just a couple hundred years old. Um, and just, I don't want to go too deeply in history because I don't want to bore you, but a couple of points uh, just to help you understand why it's so prevalent. Because you look around, why does everybody I know who's a Christian believe this and you're telling me it's wrong? Well, what happened, briefly put, is a couple hundred years ago, there was a British or Scottish, apparently, Scottish, I was wrong, yeah. I thought it was British, a Scottish preacher who hears from this woman who had a vision, he brings her thinking over to America, which included the rapture and all that stuff, and he starts this movement that's teaching this stuff, and one of the people who in time becomes converted to his way of thinking is a man named Charles Schofield, you may recognize that name. 
Schofield um, was very influential in American Christianity for one primary reason, and that's he made one of the first, if not the first, study Bibles. It's the C.I. Schofield Study Bible. Many of us had it on our shelf growing up. And what he did was he would put the text, and then you'd have little notes at the bottom, like you've seen before. And he was heavy into this particular way of thinking. And the study Bible was so popular that this way of thinking became aligned with it, and it became very popular. So the reason so many people believe it really has to do with this popularity of a study Bible. So ease your anxiety in that sense. That this type of thinking literally didn't exist until just a couple of years ago. Here's the main point I want to make though from a pastoral standpoint, and that's when we read the Gospels, one of my favorite things about them is that we get to watch the disciples coming to know the truth about Jesus, coming to know the truth about God, and it's an ugly process, right? Like they bump <laughs> around and they get things wrong and they say silly things. What I like about watching this happen is what we learn is that discipleship is a process of having our ideas about God challenged. Mm. Like that's what it's supposed to be. That's what it was designed to be all along. And so when we, you know, maybe believed something our whole life and you come to this point where you're saying, now I'm hearing that this was wrong, I think there's a sense of we may feel betrayed, you know, by the church. There's a sense of we can't let go of this old way of thinking because it's connected to a person that we valued highly, whether a, a, you know, a parent, mother, father, a grandparent, or a mentor. They taught me this. How can they be wrong? Because if I believe what you're saying, then I have to say they're wrong. And what I want to say to all of that is let's just remember that discipleship is a process of having our ideas about God sharpened. Mm. And I can tell you from a leadership standpoint, when somebody I have led comes back to me after you know, a few years, or if they come back to me in 20, 30 years and say, I disagree with what you taught me and here's why, I'm not gonna be personally offended. I'm gonna be proud of the fact that they continued to learn and continue to engage Jesus to the point where he was able to get through what I taught them and actually kind of maybe say some things that I should have said differently. Hmm. So uh, yeah, I think you get the point I'm making. Let's all embrace that part of being followers of Jesus uh, that is uncomfortable for us and that's allowing our ideas to be challenged and changed. All right, now I'll get to the questions that have been rolling in here a little bit and I'm gonna ask you about specific things that are being challenged recently and as well as and then allow you guys you can arm wrestle over who wants to launch on each one of these um the concept of a rapture you know michael you just gave us a historical background where that concept was birthed in the 1800s and didn't exist previous to that uh, why do you think the rapture came into to existence and what's at risk to walk away from the concept of of the christians being evacuated and there be this period because one of the questions that's been raised is well, about the rapture, and the second question is, there are some people that have held on to, during that, that period of time, there would be a chance for repentance for those mm-hmm. who are lost. Mm-hmm. And that, that, I love the heart behind that question. It's a valid question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, there's two folds there. I don't know who wants to, to jump in and address right. that. Do you want to go? Go for it. It's, it's your house, man. I'm, I'm from College Heights, so <laughs> I don't want to overstep my bounds. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, um, uh, the rapture is, is an interesting phenomenon. It, it, it really is. Um, and, and I'm even just going to affirm exactly what Michael was saying. And, and honestly, though, the way the rapture has really exploded is through, is through better marketing, if you really want to know. Um, 1830 is the exact date that Margaret MacDonald gave her vision in Scotland. Self-induced fever, mind you. She put herself into a prophetic trance. And then wrote a letter that it's at the end of a book called uh, The Secret, uh, The Incredible Cover-Up. And that you can read her whole letter in there. 
Um, and there's actually some significant theological difficulties with what she wrote. But it was the very first time in the history of the world we have the concept of the church leaving the world when things get bad. Which that even that concept right there is a little bit frightening to me. Matter of fact, even Jesus, one of his last words in John 17, he specifically says, my prayer is not for them to be taken out of the world, but for them to be able to endure it whenever the enemy comes. That was one of the last thing he prays in the gospel of John. So this concept of whenever the world needs the church the most, the church is gone, is very interesting to me. I I will say um, outside of, you know, John Nelson Darby coming over here and Cyrus Schofield getting the the, the reference Bible as well as Dwight L. Moody who expands the uh, rapture theology as well as Billy Graham and then Hal Lindsey and then Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, you can see how it explodes. In 180 years, this becomes the dominant view of the church. So that means for 1,800 years, the church had no idea there was this concept. But notice where it takes root historically. It takes root in a time and whenever there's this incredible optimism, an incredible increase of comfort and security inside of our country. And that's at a time whenever a theology begins to take root, and you can see why, where it says, before things get bad, you'll be taken away. And there's a kind of, there's a weirdness for that for me whenever I have to, you know, um, tell my underground church in China friends that the the tribulation hasn't begun yet. (laughs) I mean, I know, I know your friends and family are being drugged away and killed for Christ, but you just wait, it's going to get bad. Or my, my friends that are down in Haiti that are, they're not in a third world country when they're in Haiti, they're in a fourth or fifth world country because it's about as bad as they get. And a lot of them are even now being increased in their persecution because they're in a place where being a Christian and voodoo doesn't always mix. But hey, the per- the, it's going to get bad eventually. Th- there's a bit of, a, of an ethnocentrism that comes with the, the rapture root. And that is this concept of it's very easy to say it's going to get bad when you're in a position of comfortability. But I don't understand how Paul, whenever he promises suffering and persecution to us, Whenever even Jesus at the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 says, blessed are you when you persecuted. And a lot of our theology with rapture says, blessed are you whenever you escape any sort of persecution. There's an oddity to me. There is a discord in the language. So for me, on a historical level, it doesn't necessarily mean the rapture is wrong. Historically, what it does is it gives it raises a red flag and says, this should at least give you pause. That this is only 180 years old. You've got to just stop and at least admit that's a little bit strange that for 1,800 years the church didn't talk about this. The second thing that bothers me with the rapture is that scripturally there's just not good grounds for it. There are three major rapture passages. Three. Count them. Three. One of them's frightening. Um, Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 is one of them. As a matter of fact, in the Schofield Reference Bible, in the footnotes, it says, this is the clearest rapture passage in the Bible. And my problem is, is I agree with them. Because what Revelation 4 1 says is that John is seeing the vision and it says, and I heard a voice from heaven say to me, John, come up here. And they say, see, the rapture. And I'm like, what? Like, I have to change the definition of the word I, you know, to, to the whole church 2,000 years from the way in which John heard it in order for that passage to actually fit the rapture. But in the entire book of Revelation, there is no concept of the rapture, ever. But they have to smuggle it in somewhere. And Revelation 4.1 is as best they got. That's a problem for me. The other two big dogs are Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 through 41. You've probably heard this one. Two men are grinding at the millstone. One's taking the other left. Heard this? The two, the two, or actually it's two men are in the field. Two women are at the millstone. Remember that? 
Problem is the context. Context messes everything up. Um, even our awesome rapture passages, and I'm sure that they've already handled this. Have you guys handled the context of this? Yeah, what happens right before the millstones? Who's the one that is taken? Who are the ones that are left behind in Matthew chapter 24? The good. Why? Because it's like in the days of Noah. Where who is swept away from the earth and who still reigns on the earth whenever all the dust settles? The good. The evil are swept away. Not the good. So whenever it says, so two will be just, it's like in the days of Noah, so it is in the coming of the Son of Man. So part of my problem with the rapture theology is you get the wrong people leaving. And that's a bit strange. And if I'm really ornery, I'll say, so I want to be left behind. But I wouldn't say that. Kind of. Okay. My whole point is this. Pastorally, pastorally, a lot of times I find people are more obsessed with predicting and figuring out the rapture when they're going to escape persecution than I find people actually being willing to be persecuted to expand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that bothers me. It also kind of bothers me telling my friends and family there will be a second chance when what if there isn't one? Mm-hmm. That's a gamble, friends. With, with the exegetical, and I know 1 Thessalonians 4, yeah. but I, I think eventually there's a question that's directly attached to Go that. Ahead. Go ahead. I've been talking a long time. You want me to keep going? Yeah, you got three more minutes. Okay. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 4 is an interesting text too, and it would probably be helpful if we at least uh, turn there. Not that the other ones I've been quoting are inaccurate, but um, at least you can trust me that I'm not lying. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following. A couple of things are happening. First of all, this is really important to note. Um, Every letter of the New Testament is written to a specific group of people that are struggling with certain issues. And like Chad alluded to, the moment you pull it out of that context is the moment you can make the Bible say whatever you want, and that's frightening. But whenever you realize that, that, that Paul wrote this to a church at Thessalonica, and he intended it to have verse 18 as its, as its point, therefore, encourage each other with these words. One of the things that whenever I hear that and I think, oh, this is talking about the rapture, it's going to be weird to encourage people in a time of persecution for something that's going to happen 2,000 years away from them. It's not going to affect them at all. They're going, hey, thank, thanks, Paul, <laughs> but it's not even going to affect me. Why is he writing it? Well, the church of Thessalonica, remember, Thessalonica, Paul swept out basically under, under the cover of night because of the Jewish things that happened in Acts 17. He's defying the decrees of Caesar, 17 verse 6 in Acts. So he's swept away, and there's some things that the church of Thessalonica are deficient in, and the primary thing is hope. Hope. And one of the questions they're asking is, what happens if Jesus comes back, but my family members have died before he comes back? Do they miss it? Do I ever get to see them again? Are we ever reunited? Because what people are telling me is, when they die, if he doesn't come back before they die, then they just miss it. And Paul says, well, encourage each other with these words. Listen to his emphasis in this text. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Fall asleep is a metaphor for Christians. It's very important whenever it's attached to our death. Because whenever you talk about falling asleep, what is also the concept that's embedded in falling asleep? You're going to eventually do what? Wake up. And for Christians, that's a much better metaphor than death, than the actual word death. Because when we die, it's kind of like falling asleep and waking up to something a lot more beautiful than what we see here. He says, "I, I don't want you to be ignorant about those that fall asleep or to grieve for the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Did you hear that pastoral word? He says, what's happened to your family members? 
He said, I don't want you to grieve with those that have no hope. Don't you know Jesus died and rose again? And don't you know that they'll come back to him, with him? Matter of fact, he goes on to emphasize this. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not even precede those who have fallen asleep. He said, they're even in a better position than we are. He goes on, he says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, so much for a secret rapture. This is a very loud rapture. Loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead and Christ will rise first. Our emphasis in this text is the rapture. Paul's emphasis in this text is what happens to your family members that are persecuted to the point of death. He says they're first. They're with Jesus first. They'll come back with him first. And then he says this, after that we are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We hear that and we say, oh, rapture. Church of Thessalonica hears that and they say, so we'll meet Jesus and our family in the air? We will be with them? Matter of fact, the word meet there is the word in Greek, apontesis, which means it's, usually, it's a royal term. Whenever an emperor would come to a town, you wouldn't let the emperor make it into your city before you greet him. You go outside of the city to meet him and bring him back into the city walls. That's the word here. To meet him in the air and immediately come right back down because we're still going to use this place. Why? Because the evil swept away, not us. We're still going to use this place. My goodness, this microphone is awesome. <laughs> it's actually my ponytail. Sorry. It's been your thing to watch. It's leave impressive. Leave it to the hippie. Yeah. Like you're preaching Constantly it going and, back forth. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, really quick. Um, and so, now listen to this last line, and this is why it makes sense why Paul would say this to encourage the church of Thessalonica. And so, we, you, me, and your family members that have died, we will be with the Lord forever. My goodness, when people take that and they only focus on the rapture, they miss the point of this text. You know what this text is saying? Your son or daughter that you lost is with Jesus, and you're going to be there too. Your mom or your dad that even taught you about Jesus are with him now, and you'll be there with him too. And that will encourage brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, you guys can clap on that one. Mr. Ragsdale. One of the yes. questions that was posed is, in light of this, there is a period of the seven years of tribulation, the yeah. millennial kingdom yeah. concept. Do you want to broach that? Because it's, it's been asked two or three different ways, so I'm going to try to encapsulate them under that. You can pick Question either one Question about the side. millennial kingdom and the seven years of tribulation? Yes. Um, I think I'll let Shane handle the seven years of tribulation and the millennium probably too, because he might have written a little bit on that. Um, the millennium, the millennium kingdom. Um, this has even less biblical evidence for it than the rapture does. Um, the uh, one of the things I always caution my students on in uh, we have a class called Principles of Interpretation. One of the one of the things that I always caution my students on is constructing your theology constructing the main pillars or some of the main foundation stones of your theology around certain texts that even themselves are contentious texts. Mm. Texts that Christians have had a long history of debate and conflict related to these texts. 
it's just it's something that we need to be very cautious about, very careful about, making this a centerpiece for our theology. But nevertheless, many people have. Many people have taken Revelation chapter 20, and they've turned this really into the centerpiece of their theology. Um, and Revelation chapter 20 does talk about a thousand-year reign. Um, and there's, there's a long history of different interpretations of this text. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting. Shane talked about how really the rapture theology, the rapture beliefs found fertile sto- soil in our culture, in our context, in our, in our country. Um, and it's doubtful if rapture theology could have ha- found uh, fertile soil in a place like sub-Saharan Africa or, you know, someplace like that. Um, Culture does have a huge influence on the way that Christians have felt, the way that Christians have believed about certain issues in end times theology, and the millennium is one of those things. You could just trace it historically. When things are going really well in a culture, um, there tends to be an emphasis put on what they call post-millennialism. This, this was true at the turn of the, of the 19th century when things in, you know, the Industrial Revolution had happened and, and things were looking very positive, very progressive, and there was a great deal of optimism in the Western world. And so one of the key elements of theology during that time was called post-millennialism, which was a particular interpretation of Revelation 20, which said things will progress so well upon the earth through the influence of the church, through the influence of the gospel, things will naturally progress over time so that Christ will essentially reign over all of the earth and all things will be placed underneath his feet. It was a very optimistic view of history. During other times where things have not been nearly as optimistic, um, this post-millennial view gave way to what was called pre-millennialism. Um, so even within the history of our country, you have horrific events in the 20th century. Uh, two world wars, a Great Depression, a Cold War, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. And it was within that context that premillennialism really started to take root. And premillennialism was the belief that Jesus is going to come back and he's actually going to physically reign as a king on this, on this earth for a literal 1,000 years. Um, and that will take place in Jerusalem. And, and it, but it's related to events going on in culture. It's interesting in the Middle Ages, you talked about uh, rapture belief and how people are, seems like, more interested in trying to preach when the rapture is going to come rather than anything else. In the Middle Ages, people became fascinated with the arrival of the Antichrist. They just became completely distracted and overwhelmed by who is the Antichrist and when is the Antichrist going to come. And there's a cultural reason for that. In the Middle Ages, all of Europe was Christian Europe. They, it, it was essentially a, well, a Christian culture governed by the church. And so culturally, it was in their best interest. We don't, we're not really necessarily looking for Jesus to come back. We're scared that the Antichrist is going to come and ruin everything. So that became the dominant focus. So a lot of these things are culturally conditioned. They're culturally bound. And it all goes back, again, to this text in Revelation chapter 20. What does this text mean? What does this text say when it says there will be a reign for a thousand years? My particular interpretation, and Shane and Michael, you can supplement this, but my particular interpretation is, historically, it's called an amillennial position, but it's, it's the belief that that reign is currently taking place right now. Um, that, and, and the number 1,000 is intended to be a symbolic number, as virtually all numbers, especially in Revelation, are. 
Um, but this reign is currently happening. So I personally do not believe that the proper interpretation of Revelation chapter 20 is that Jesus will come back and physically reign for a thousand years. I think that that's um, a misleading interpretation. Uh, Let me say one thing, and then you can run run with that in the tribulation too. Um, I keep looking for something to disagree with you guys on to make it fun, but not so far. We'll find it. Um, Yeah, the the one thing I would say, just to reiterate exactly what... uh, uh, what Chad said is, what's funny is he, he quoted a text earlier, Acts 1, about the ascension of Jesus, which I think is particularly important for this. And here's why. I think the question to think through when it comes to the kingdom is, is Jesus reigning right now or not? Because if the New Testament teaches that Jesus is reigning, then an amillennial interpretation of Revelation 20 makes best sense. If the New Testament doesn't, then we should look forward to some future reign, whether it's pre or post. And the entire point of the ascension, at least in, in Acts and a couple other places, is to install Jesus as this reigning king. Um, the most often quoted, and he's correct me if I'm wrong, I'll, make, I'll start making really brash statements and that way we can disagree if I'm wrong. But I think the most quoted Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament is, uh, by just number-wise, is Psalm 110, which is actually a, uh, a psalm about the king reigning and the enemies being you know, put at his feet and these various things. And so... Uh, again, just to say one thing, that would be the question I would encourage you to ask. Is the New Testament teach that Jesus reigns or does it not? And if it does, there's your answer to the millennium. Yeah, and actually, let me, uh, let me, let me just pick up right there because uh, one of the questions I ask is, Jesus, did Jesus accomplish what he came to do? Mm. Um, and, and that's really important, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 4.17, Jesus' first public words, 4.17. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Same first public words that John the Baptist said in in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus seems to think that when he has come, he's coming to establish a kingdom. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, whenever they did the Beelzebub controversy, and they look at him and they say, oh, you're not, you're empowered by Beelzebub. That's how you're doing all these amazing miracles. And in 1228, Jesus responds by saying this. He says, if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he says, now, now you're saying I'm casting out demons by Beelzebub, which is absurd. I mean, why would Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided would fall. He says, no, no. I'm, if that's true, which is totally ludicrous, just logically, even just militaristically, he says, then that, I guess you can go with that. But if I'm casting, it out, casting out these demons by the finger of God, then you know the kingdom has come upon you. What does Jesus think his ministry is doing? Establishing a kingdom. That's why he talks about it all the time in Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says he went through all the cities and towns in Galilee, preaching and teaching the good news of the kingdom. Very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Matthew chapter 6, he says, you know, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness will be added unto you. Consistently throughout the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, very beginning of the parables, what is the phrase he keeps saying over and over and over? The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, even when you get to the parables in 20 and 21 and 22, the kingdom of heaven is like, what does Jesus think he's doing? He thinks he's establishing a kingdom. And he's so audacious at the end of Matthew to use kingdom language whenever he moves in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Think of that through a kingdom lens. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And Rome says, I'm sorry, what? All authority where? And it has been given to who now? And Jesus says, it's been given to me. Because I am the reigning kingdom. And he says, therefore, go and conquer the nations. Make them disciples. 
How? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Why? Because I'm the Lord of this kingdom. See, Jesus seems to think he's come to establish the kingdom. And the question is, did he do it or not? And sometimes people say, but Shane, how can you believe there's a reigning kingdom? Because if you believe that Jesus is reigning right now, you also have to believe the dumb thing that Satan is bound. Revelation 21 through 3, the only time in the New Testament it taught, or in the Old Testament where the concept of a Satan being bound. That makes no sense. I mean, I look around and I see Satan ruling pretty good. You know what? I think they were thinking the same thing when Jesus was hanging on the cross. How in the world does this establish the kingdom? If you're a true king, you'd be reigning like Rome. And Jesus says, what? I mean, wouldn't you just assume that the kingdom of God would look different than the kingdom of Rome? Wouldn't you just assume it? Wouldn't you assume that the kingdom would even be in the shape of a cross? See, one of the things that Revelation tells us is the way that we win is whenever we suffer like Jesus. Revelation 12, 10 through 12, it talks, this is, Revelation 12 is whenever uh, the dragon wipes out a third of the stars from the sky, and it's actually the birth of Jesus. Um, if you have Christmas, that's going to be a good Christmas text, because there's this woman pregnant with the child, and in verse 5 it says she's pregnant with the one that will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Who rules the nations with an iron scepter? Jesus. Sunday school answer. Jesus. Good job. Well done. Okay. So we have Mary pregnant with a baby. And the odd thing is, instead of your kids dressed up like donkeys and cows, one of them should be dressed up like a dragon about ready to eat the baby. It's a weird text. But then in verses 7 through 9, you have this war in heaven where Satan and his angels go up and they fight Michael the archangel and his angels. And Satan is cast out of heaven. And then heaven breaks out in a song in verses 10 through 12. And right in the middle of the song, in verse 11, it says, how did they overcome the beast? It says they over, or the dragon, they overcame him by two ways. Number one, the blood of the lamb. And number two, the word of the saints who would not shrink from death. You see, the way in which the kingdom reigns should look like a cross. It, it, so whenever you have that lens on, all of a sudden you stop and you go, oh, yeah. I mean, binding doesn't mean eradication, friends. Mm-hmm. It means restrained. And I am not willing to accept the fact that Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension did nothing to limit Satan. I can't accept that. I'm sorry. He is limited. He is very limited. Why? Because the power of the truth of Jesus Christ can go and Satan cannot overcome it. Whenever the blood of the lamb shows up and whenever the word of the saints that will not shrink from death, Satan is limited, friends. He's limited. So then, the question then becomes this. Uh, Chad brought this up wonderfully in Revelation chapter 20. Whenever you come to numbers in the book of Revelation, this goes back to what section of the newspaper that you're in. When you come to numbers in Revelation, and I say this, it sounds more witty than what it is. You don't measure the numbers, you weigh them. And what do I mean by that? We are obsessed with measuring. So we want to know how many people are in attendance. And numbers for us are about precision and accuracy. That's not the way a Jew thinks. A Jew thinks of the weight of the number, the symbolic weight of the number. So for example, we have this in our culture too, by the way. You ever gone up in a skyscraper and you're on the 15th floor and you get in an elevator and you look for the 15th floor and what do you notice from 12 to, there's no 13. I mean, do you really want to risk going up in an elevator when an architect can't count from 1 to 15? I mean, (laughs) do you really want to do this? No, why are you even laughing? 
Because you know the number 13 doesn't just measure something, it weighs something in our culture. I made a major mistake whenever I was in Russia teaching on Revelation, and I, this woman was just a phenomenal interpreter. I said, let's get her a dozen roses, and the other interpreter looked at me like I was like wanting to kill her or something. I was like, what did I say? What did I say? He goes, in our culture, an even number of flowers means that you want her to die tomorrow. And I was like, oh my goodness. It's like, send her 13 flowers. I'm so sorry. Like, numbers weigh something. They weigh something. So the number seven in Jewish literature means completion. Where do you think they get that from? Genesis 1. How many days did God create the world in? Technically six. I mean, it wasn't like you got to day seven. He was like, wow, I wanted to do seven days. I just ran out of ideas. Like, I'm just exhausted. I guess I'll just relax. Like, no, they believed he went to the day seven and he arranged all of the cosmos around this number. And that's why for them it meant completion. So whenever you see the lamb in Revelation chapter five, who has seven horns and horns, you know, means power. What is it saying about the lamb? When you weigh the number, he has complete power. The number 10 is fascinating. The number 10 is a number that usually is attached to completion, but also in the context of suffering and testing that God proves faithful through. Daniel chapter one, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tested for 10 days on their dietary preferences and they, God is proved faithful. Revelation 2.9, the church in Smyrna, you will be put into prison for 10 days. Now, what happens if they're in there for 11 days? Did God lie? No, because they know the number 10 stands for a number of completion usually attached to suffering, testing that God proves faithful in. Where do they get that? Throughout the, all, the entire Old Testament. Is this making sense? You guys following me? What is the number 1,000? 10 times 10 times 10. Wouldn't it make sense to talk about the kingdom of God with a number that's a number of completion usually attached to suffering that within it is embedded the Trinity itself? What if he's saying in this time, the world, Rome will tell you you're losing, but in the view of the cross, you're reigning. As a matter of fact, one of the things that's fascinating is in Revelation chapter 20, um, the word earth never appears in verses four through six where there is this reign, even though we assume the reign of Jesus is on earth. Never appears, ever. Now you can't say, well, the word heaven doesn't appear either. That's true. But the word throne does appear. And the word throne in Revelation is used 49 times, 49 times. And only three times is the word throne ever used for somebody that is not God, Jesus, or one of his followers. Satan, he's used for it twice, as well as the beast. Revelation 16, Revelation 2. Three times it's used for people that are evil. And every time the word throne is used for somebody that is evil, it is always on earth. Every time. Matter of fact, the number one name for the evil people in Revelation is earth dwellers. Why? Where is their allegiance? It's attached to the earth. The other 46 times the word throne is used attached to God, Jesus, or one of his followers. It is always every single time in heaven. The only time that would be the exception would be Revelation 24 through 6 if those thrones are on earth. Problem is, it never says earth. So, here's my conclusion. Jesus came to establish a kingdom. He accomplished it. Him and the souls of those that have gone before us are reigning with him right now. Through us, the church, that's the extension of the kingdom of God on earth. And John says that in the very first chapter. Uh, this will be it. I'm sorry. Um, John, Revelation chapter 1, 9 says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance 
that are ours in Jesus. What does John seem to think that we are? The kingdom right now. So let's live like it. You know? What about the seven years of tribulation? How, how do you want to, the, the question's been raised. Let me go for that. Yeah, let go me ahead, try Michael. to give overview and then, because um, in a lot of ways, all we need to do for that one is to point to a few different things that we've said so far. Um, um, let me rephrase that. A few different things Shane has said so far. Um, and no, in a good way. No, I don't mean in a bad way at all. I just didn't want to take credit for I'll your words. So one of the things he said is, um, um, think about what it would, because again, the seven-year tribulation is this idea that, you know, there's going to be this period of time, like things aren't really bad now, and then they will be really bad then. That only makes sense in our culture, in a cultural context that lacks suffering. That's the first thing to keep in mind. Um, revelation numbers are always symbolic. That's the second thing to keep in mind, seven in particular. Um, and then there was one other thing you said that I was going to bring to bear on, and I can't remember what it is. Um, Ultimately, I think it was just the idea that all of this is designed to encourage a specific group of people. Book of Revelation is fascinating because you have this an opening vision in chapter 1, and then it builds into these letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, and then it goes into the rest. The 4 and 5 are the sort of the theological center, and then you have these cycles of visions and whatnot. The further you get from chapters 2 and 3 in the book, the easier it is to forget about them. But these are the people who are the original audience of this book. So whatever this stuff means, it has to mean something to them. It has to be, you know, encouraging to them. He was writing to them uh, in, very, in very difficult situations they were in. We could talk all day about the specifics of that. So um, numbers being symbolic is important. Uh, cultural context is important. Most of the church would laugh at us if we said the tribulation isn't here yet. Um, and then the third point being this should be encouraging to the original readers. And the last thing I'll say is um, that a lot of this last days type language that we find in the New Testament, think about Acts 2 um, where Peter quotes Joel to, who says, in the last days, and then these things are going to happen. This is happening now, is what Peter says. Mm-hmm. So the last days is a way of referring um, not to like a few days within a time period, but to the entire time period in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The idea being like, we're living in the last days because the kingdom of God has been transposed onto earth, and now we're living into it, um, looking forward to the second coming. So um, the seven-year tribulation would be a similar concept, I would think, that it talks about the type of life in, that we live in during this period of time, which is, if we're living by the way of the cross, typically characterized by suffering. So I don't know if that really wraps it up in a bow, but those are just a few of the things that have been mentioned specifically directed to the idea of the seven-year tribulation. Mm-hmm. Well, these, these three things are all really a part of a system. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The, the three things being the rapture, the tribulation, yeah. and the physical reign of Jesus on the earth for a thousand years. All three of those are part of the same system, and all three of those are critical parts of the same system. Um, and all three of those parts, incidentally, I think have very, very minimal biblical justification for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a great deal of pop culture justification for them. Very, very, but I would just encourage you, again, search the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Mind the scriptures. Be very wary, be very careful about what you hear in popular Christian culture or just pop culture in general, but especially pop Christian culture (laughs) Uh, because a lot of times it becomes very dissociated and very disconnected from what the text actually says. Mind the text, okay? Mind the text. More than what you hear the three of us saying, more than what you hear Mark saying. Um, Now, I I believe that you have good reasons to trust us, uh, but I, again, just mind the text because a lot of things get a, uh, 
a great deal of press in pop culture, but when you actually look at the texts that are used to justify them, you realize how thin the evidence really is. Mm -hmm. So rapture, tribulation, millennial kingdom, um, we've just spent a great deal of time talking about the rapture and the millennial kingdom, and I believe that you know, once those two beliefs are undermined, really the belief in a seven-year tri- tribulation yeah. becomes undermined too. And it, it's somewhat offensive to the sensibilities too of just New Testament theology in general to think that we would escape tribulation. That seems to go against the flow of everything that you read mm-hmm. uh, from Jesus, from Paul, uh, the idea that Christians would somehow be exempt from suffering, that we would somehow be exempt from tribulation, especially when you see our brothers and sisters who are literally going through tribulation of the worst kind all around the world today. And it's, I was just looking at this text a moment ago in Revelation 7. One of the texts that is used to justify tribulation theology is in Revelation 7, verse 14. Uh, it's talking about a great multitude that's standing before the throne, and it says, they have come out of the great tribulation. Now, does that lead you to to believe that they have escaped the tribulation, Hmm. that they have been unscathed by the tribulation, that they have been unharmed by the tribulation. No, it actually says that they've come out of the tribulation. They were in the midst of it. Um, And so this text is, I believe, just being misread. Yeah, and the only things I'll really add is, number one, the word seven-year tribulation never appears together in the entire Bible. No. So let that that sink in for one moment. You will never find seven year tribulation the entire bible not revelation nowhere as a matter of fact revelation never attaches the word seven and year together it's just never there where that comes from is daniel 9 the 77s of daniel you've heard that right but when we're in apocalyptic literature we don't measure numbers we weigh them (laughs) and seven is a number of completion seven is a number of completion that is oftentimes attached to especially in that context atonement which is fascinating because that's what Daniel's praying about in Daniel 9, 20 and 21. Daniel's question in Daniel 9, from which the archangel, I believe it's Gabriel, yes, verse 21, comes and gives the answer of the 77s. Daniel's question is, we are in exile. They're in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has not only taken the people of God into exile, but he has destroyed the temple. And Daniel asked the question, what happens to the sins of Israel if we cannot offer sacrifices in the temple? When will the temple be rebuilt? And that's what's emphasized in verses 20 through 21, where it even mentions that he's praying during the time of the evening sacrifice. And once we get to Gabriel's answer, he says, as soon as the answer was given, uh, began, uh, verse 24, 77s are decreed for your people, your holy city, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. You understand the question Daniel's asking. What do we do with the sins? And his question, though, comes in a different form. Because in Daniel's mind, there is no atonement for sins without a temple. Because that's what God's laid down. So the sins of the nation of Israel are heaping up. And Daniel says, what do we do? We can't deal with the sin problem. And Gabriel's response is, you're looking for a place when you should be looking for a person. Because he says, actually, the temple will be rebuilt. And then in verse 27, he says, and then it'll be destroyed. But the one image that's right in the middle of all of this is the anointed one that comes to put an end to all sacrifices. And we think Antichrist or Jesus. So how do the 77s play into this? The seventh seven, when we're talking years in Jewish literature is very important. It's called the year of Jubilee. And it is the year, the seventh seven. So the 49th year, 490, 49th year was the year of complete liberation. 
All of the captives are set free. Even the land gets a day off or a year off. It is basically the Sabbath in a yearly form. But the seventh seven was the year of Jubilee. So whenever you hear 49, the moment the Jews sitting are thinking seven times seven, the year of Jubilee. But then he multiplies it by 10. Why is that important? Well, if I'm weighing numbers, and I know that Tim's a number of completion usually attached to suffering. All of a sudden, the atonement Daniel's looking for will come, but through a time period of suffering as well. So what Daniel's told is this. You're looking for a place, you should be looking for a person. But when it comes, actually the atonement's gonna come through more suffering and ultimately the suffering that's heaped on the one, the anointed one, that puts an end to all sacrifice. But that is the text where we get the seven years of tribulation. (laughs) That's not what that text is talking about. As a matter of fact, the moment that you smuggle in the seven-year tribulation, it makes it woefully smaller, in my view. It diminishes the power and impact of what it is that the answer that Daniel receives. And that is atonement's coming through the one Jesus Christ, and you will be asked to act like him, which is what Revelation expounds on. So, um, and so all that to say, I would agree, a tribulation is not only happening now, it's been happening for 2,000 years plus. And we win by living in the shape of the cross. All right, Michael. Why don't you lead us off the questions raised. What role does the nation of Israel and the Jewish people play in the second oh, coming of Jesus? Man, you sent that one to me, didn't you? <laughs> yes, he did. <clears throat> um, the same role as in the other nation? Um, ask the question again. What does the role of the Jewish nation play in what? In the second yeah, coming when, of Jesus? You know, there's interpretations yeah, yeah. of Romans idea, 9 through 16. And, absolutely, yeah. Um, are, you know, and we've even talked about this. We joked about it. Foreign policy and everything no kidding, established man. on you've got to keep Israel alive. Yeah, this is one of those, yeah, I might really, uh, not even that I believe anything controversial, but even if I use the wrong word, I might make you mad. Yes. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm just going to say this as a preface to the answer. It's interesting how much, as Mark was saying, of the foreign policy um, has been shaped by an, a particular interpretation of the scriptures that keeps a very crucial role for the physical nation of Israel um, in, in all of the story coming to a conclusion. I think I want to make two points. One the centerpiece of the story was the cross. Yes, we're looking forward to the consummation of that, but that's like the cleaning up and the finishing of what started on the cross. So the cross is the center of the story. Like there's not another center. That's the point of climax in this particular narrative. Everything else after that is, is some level of resolution. Um, so the cross is, is the defining mark for everything. And then the second point builds out of that. Uh, in the, and by cross, I'm, I'm using that as a shorthand for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the establishing of the church, which is what we see in the New Testament, the word Israel is redefined, okay? One of Jesus, Shane has beautifully communicated the central purpose of Jesus' ministry. You should know that walking out, if you didn't walking in, it was to establish the kingdom of God. And the secondary theme within that um, is to establish the kingdom of God by restoring the people of God. Like you, you didn't have one without the other. There's no king without a people, Right? And so Jesus said multiple parts of his ministry about the restoration of the people of God. Choosing 12 disciples, 12 apostles was crucial because it represented or it aligned with the 12 tribes. Um, In John 15, when he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches, the vineyard was a significant Old Testament image for the building of the people of Israel, the founding of the people of Israel, and then the destruction and then the rebuilding of them. So that was, a cru- that was an important image in that regard. When Jesus says things like, who are my mother and brother and sisters? Is the people sitting around a circle around me? What Jesus is doing is he's restoring the people of God and he's 
redefining it with him at the center. Then you have Paul coming along and talking about how Israel, according to the, according to the flesh, and Israel according to the spirit, those sorts of things. Long story short, Paul now defines Israel, defines a faithful Israelite as one who shares the faith of Jesus or one whose faith is in Jesus. Both those concepts are there. So Israel is being redefined theologically so that it's no longer an ethnic category. It is now a Let's use this word. It's a spiritual category. That's a slippery word, but I think you know what I mean. It's a, it's a Christ category. It's a Jesus category. Mm-hmm. Israel is now those who put their faith in Jesus. The family, uh, the story's been completed and the family's now opened up. And keep in mind too, this was the intent all along. Like God chose a specific people when he called Abraham out from among all the other peoples. And then he continued to work through the specific nation when he called Israel together through Moses and the giving of the Torah and those sorts of things. All the while, this was designed to be the means through which he would reach out to everyone. So this is the shape. It goes like this. It doesn't go like this, right? It's not like I'm going to go from Israel out to the rest of the world and then back through the nation of Israel. No, no, no. Like Israel was designed to be the way, the means that God worked through to reach the rest of us. He did that in Jesus. Now Israel is redefined as those who put their faith in Jesus. So the physical nation of Israel, what role will it play in the second coming of Jesus? The same as any other nation, which... To say, which is to say, like nothing special. And I don't mean to be disrespectful, or you know, if if I'm wrong, may God strike me dead. Right? That's what I think the New Testament teaches: is that you know, ethnic Israelites will answer to Jesus the same that ethnic Americans and ethnic, uh, you know, whatever. Pick pick your poison, pick your country. Okay. So you guys can either correct or, or confirm that. But that that'd be how I would approach that question. Yeah, um, I I like what you said about Jesus at the center. Um, book like Hebrews, I think really, really, cha- there, there is, for those of you who don't know where the question is coming from, um, there is, there is a belief among many Christians and also among many Jews as well, um, that uh, there is a prophecy and they base this a little bit on Revelation, a little bit on Ezekiel and maybe some other places. Uh, but there is the belief that the temple will be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem um, and sacrifices will even recommence at the temple. There's Christians actually that hold this view. And I think that that's just um, a horrible, a horrible understanding of the cross. It's a horrible understanding of the importance of what Jesus accomplished on the cross uh, and in the resurrection. Um, and a book like Hebrews, you know, makes this emphatically clear. Mm-hmm. I always give Shane a hard time. I teach Hebrews, he teach Revelation, and it's like, Leah and Rachel, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, but they're talking about they're talking about similar subject matter. The issue of per- yeah, the issue of uh, perseverance, yeah. overcoming, uh, especially throughout um, desert trials and things like this. Um, but Hebrews makes it emphatically clear that the sacrifice of Jesus made any other sacrifice null and void. There is no more sacrifice for sins. That's it. That's all we need. All we need is Jesus. All we need is his blood shed for us to cleanse us from all sin. And so it just blows my mind that there's a whole subgroup of Christians who honestly believe that we need to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem and recommence sacrifices as if this is predicted in scripture, which it's not. Um, To me, this just undercuts what Jesus accomplished for us clearly on the cross. Um, And there's, there's other things that could probably be said. Michael said it very well about how the New Testament sort of redefines, it doesn't sort of, it does redefine what we're talking about when it comes to Israel. And, and the other thing that has to be kept in mind too is 
is the modern day nation state of Israel, is that even the same thing Mm -hmm. as first century Israel? I would argue that it is not. We need to do some rapid fire ones here. There's some questions that have come in. And so I'm going to try to, uh, you you guys can do what you need to do with them, but there's a list of them here I want to pick off. Um, First one. At the judgment, will I be held accountable for someone else's soul beside my own? I think the background may have been our last three weeks of the parable of the talents, the separating of the sheep and the goats. And today we talked about in John 12 when Jesus said, my words came from the Father. And when you've heard these words, you've heard the Father. And so in light of all of that, who wants to broach? Yeah, I think I can answer pretty quickly. Um, I, I want to say the answer to the question is you'll be held accountable for your own soul. But I also want to say that some truth in the way the question is being asked, that here's the way I would look at it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be held accountable for me. But what I'm going to be held accountable on is, is my faith been demonstrated by obedience. And part of what I've been commanded to do is to you know, try to go get other souls, so to speak. Try to go get others to understand who Jesus is and bring them in, call them to the obedience of faith. So is it my responsibility whether or not they um, have come in? No, but it is my responsibility to have done what I can so that they had the opportunity. I think that's some of the Ezekiel watchmen in the wall. If I understand the question correctly, to be asking, am I responsible for my own soul only or my own soul and somebody else's? The answer is my own soul, but my own soul's like how my own soul answers that question of responsibility has something to do with whether I did something for those other souls. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Shane, there's a follow-up question to some of the explanations we just gave, and so I'm going to let this one jump to the front. What about the 1260 days or times, times, and half a time yeah. of Daniel 725? Does the 12,060 have any connection with the Jewish rebellion three and a half years before the destruction of the temple? You want me to go with that? Is that okay? Is that right? Yeah, it was okay. to you, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't want to answer it, so yeah. <laughs> in, in, <laughs> uh, what I think is we don't count measure numbers, we weigh them. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's what I think. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. That's the answer. <laughs> uh, what's interesting about that is that is that John picks up that exact same language in the book of Revelation and yeah. he uses three different ways of explaining that number, times time, half a time. 42 months is one of the ways, three and a half years and 1,260 days, two of which are found in Revelation chapter 11, um, only a verse apart. So Revelation 11, two, uh, they will trample on the holy city 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Again, if you read this through the lens of the Old Testament, uh, the, the question takes care of itself, and this is what I mean by that. Because one of the central figures of these 1,260 days is the two witnesses, right? What are, who are the two witnesses? Well, read it through both an Old Testament and a New Testament lens. And I'm going to go through this quick because it's supposed to be rapid fire. Um, verse 4, it says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Where does that come from? Book of Zechariah. He sees two olive trees, the two lampstands. He says, what are these? He says, that's the king and the priest, the anointed ones of God. So the two witnesses, first of all, first image that's given to them from the Old Testament is king and priest. Who does that sound like? Who? Just who? Just give me a guess. Kind of sounds like Jesus. He's a king and a priest, isn't he? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Just making sure. It's going to say, read Hebrews, read Matthew. Okay. Uh, then the next thing. Uh, if anyone tries to harden them, fire comes from their mouths, devours their enemies. In the Old Testament, where, who was one of the people where fire came down and devoured the enemies? It was on a, it was on a mountain. Oh, 
Elijah. Yes, yes, yes. Elijah. Keep that in mind. That's very important because also the very next image, these men, verse six, have the power to shut up the sky so it will not rain, which sounds like Elijah once again. Then it keeps going. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth every kind of plague as, they often, as, as often as they want. Who does that sound like? Moses. You, can you think of any place in the entire New Testament where Moses and Elijah show up? Where? Mount of Transfiguration. Why? Because Moses was an archetypal symbol of the law and Elijah was the archetypal symbol of the prophets. And the law and the prophets is a way of summarily referring to what? The entire Old Testament. The law and the prophets. Matthew 5, 17. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, Jesus says. Law and the prophets. So Jesus is the fulfillment of law and the prophets, which the transfiguration is pointing towards, right? Because Peter says, oh my goodness, let's build tabernacles. God says, shut up, Peter. They all fall down. And then they look up and who's standing? Who's the only one left? Jesus. Because he is the law and the prophets and the fulfillment of them. So first image, king and priest. Sounds like Jesus. Second image, Moses and Elijah, law and prophets. Sounds like Jesus. Then listen to their ministry. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, which is also where their Lord was crucified. So now these witnesses, the king and priests, also Moses and Elijah, law and prophets, now are crucified in Jerusalem. Who does this sound like? Okay, it gets better. For three and a half days, men from every people and tribe, language, and nation, for a number of completion, usually attached to the earth, will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, sending themselves uh, gifts and celebrating because the two prophets who tormented them are now dead. But after three and a half days, what happens to them? They resurrect. What does that sound like? Then... Verse 12, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went to heaven in a cloud. Who does this sound like? Isn't it interesting that the 1,260 days, which is a time period of persecution, seems to look a lot like Jesus. And the whole point of Revelation 7 is you should look the same. You should look the same. When you look like Jesus, this is an important point as well. In verse 13, At the very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Survivors were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. That is the only time the entire book of Revelation where there is repentance from non-Christians. And it happens when the church looks a lot like Jesus. When? During the time of tribulation. 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, times, times, half a time. What's it referring to? The time of tribulation in the atonement of Christ, which is now. That's been going on for 2,000 years, kind of like a 1,000-year reign. You see what these numbers are doing? As a matter of fact, think of the two different numbers that I'm suggesting describe the same time period. If I'm talking about something positive for a Christian right now, I'd say it's like a 1,000-year reign. Something negative, it's like 42 months. You'll be fine. (laughs) Same time period. But the numbers have weight. And for the churches of Asia Minor... That, that compels them to be witnesses. But that's where those numbers appear in Revelation, and I allow John to interpret what Daniel may not have said as clearly as John was able to. Mr. Ragsdale. Yes. The question is, what happens to our spirit when we die? We talk about the end times, and if we're here when he shows up, but what happens to those of us, that, like we talked about in Thessalonians, that yeah. go before? What do you believe happens to us upon the moment of death? I, I have no, no trouble saying, because I think scripture backs this up several places, that they are with the Lord. Um, And 
uh, you could call that heaven. Uh, I think John calls that heaven. Um, and so I believe that when we die, our spirit is with the Lord. I, I do want to add this very critical point, though, that our ultimate hope is not to be disembodied spirits floating around in the clouds somewhere. Our ultimate hope is to be fully embodied, resurrected people. That's, that's our hope. Um, I, I want to add this just because this is a, a good place to add it. Um, you mentioned, Mark mentioned in his sermon this morning, just a very quick line about the resurrection and how the resurrection verifies um, uh, this hope that we have. And I think that this, this point needs to be made at some point tonight, so I, I want to make it now. Um, I, I always, each semester I talk to my class, my classes about the difference between imagination and fantasy. Some of you might have actually heard this before. Um, and I usually use the Cubs mark as an illustration for this. And, um, and, and I ask my class, full of a bunch of sarcastic Cardinals fans, um, the, the Cubs redundant. winning the World Series. The Cubs winning the World Series. Is this imagination or is it fantasy? And of course, being the dutiful Cardinals fans that they are, they will say, that's fantasy, which is wrong. It's completely wrong. Now, the Chicago Bears winning the World Series, that's fantasy. The Chicago Cubs winning the World Series does require imagination. As a matter of fact, we're, approach, we're rapidly approaching a day and age where there probably won't be a living person on the planet who was alive when the Cubs last won the World Series. Um, so it does actually require imagination. It, you know, and Mark and I, we can dream, what's that going to be like? You know, and I, I just, I'm, I've already got my celebration dance ready. I, I mean, so you, you just... Oh, just dream, like, what's Chicago going to be like? What are the streets going to be like? What, you know, I'm going to wake up all my name. I'm not going to come to school the next day. I'm not. I'm taking the <laughs> day off. As a Cardinals fan, it's um, awesome. So, yeah. Just to let you know. But, but here's the thing. <laughs> the reason why it's imagination is because the Cubs are a baseball team. They are a major league baseball team, and they at least, they have a chance. They have that chance. Now, when it comes to Christian hope, the world would look at Christian hope and would say something like the resurrection that's just pure fantasy. That's just pure and utter fantasy. It's wishful thinking. This idea that you die and you go to heaven or this idea, this more important Christian idea that we're going to be resurrected someday, it's just pure fantasy. And to that I would say absolutely not. Hmm. What distinguishes this whole discussion, what, what the critical point that we understand tonight is what keeps this entire discussion tonight from entering into the realm of fantasy is the historic resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that, that's really it. Because Jesus died and resurrected, that is called a first fruits of the resurrection. His resurrection is an anticipation, is a promise of our own resurrection. So this isn't just wishful thinking. This isn't just fantasy. Now, it does require imagination. I'm not going to deny that. It requires imagination. And that's one of the reasons I love end time stuff. I love it. Because it allows me to have imagination. Like, what's a resurrection body going to be like? Am I going to be balding? You know, like, am I going to be a 20-year-old or a 40-year-old in the resurrection? Like, I don't know. And I think Paul had some of that frustration, too. Um, it requires a lot of imagination. But I, what I do know is that it's not fantasy. I know that this is a real living hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever neglect that. So this, this is a critically important question. Where do my loved ones go when they die? Where do I go when I die? Well, I really truly believe that we go to be with our Lord. I, I believe that. 
Uh, I think Revelation 20 supports that too. Um, but what I also believe is, I believe that our ultimate destiny, our ultimate hope, is the resurrection. And that's what we ultimately have to look forward to. I don't know if you sent a question in, and I haven't posed it. I tried to bring them together as best I could into some summary questions. Uh, and so I do apologize if you sent a question in and, and I didn't present it tonight. Did you appreciate these guys being here tonight and sharing with us? Now, what I want to share with you is that uh, Shane has some books that he's put together. It's a collection of essays from the book of Revelation answering some of these questions. And uh, Mike, uh, my uh, support of it or acknowledgement of it is I sent one to my dad about three weeks ago. He listens to me preach every now and then, and he said, I need a good book on Revelation. So I sent him a couple, and one I sent him, he said, I needed a dictionary. I couldn't read that at all. And the second <laughs> one I sent him, he goes, I like that one that Shane guy wrote. So anyway, uh, Shane has a total of five books that are going to be here. I'm going to take them back when we're done here to the connecting place, which is on the uh, outside of the cafe there. And uh, you, if you want that book, you can go to Amazon.com. And they, you said, what, there's maybe two dozen available Something through them like right that. now? Yeah. And their uh, College Press is going to be reproducing them again. So if you want to pick up one of those tonight... As soon as I can get back there, uh, they're $20. Shane did not want me to do this. I need to say that right now because I know I'm making him highly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to come here and shill a book out of the back of his trunk, all right? (laughs) But I told him, if you're going to come here and talk, bring some books. And so he brought the ones he had available. But we want to encourage you, if you want to read more or, uh, and so forth, we're going to put a bibliography that these guys have recommended on where they've learned what they've learned and some books that they would recommend that you read. But I want to caution you too, just as a pastor, I think it's part of the protective nature that God gives us. Not everything you read in every book should you just blindly swallow and think that's fact. Uh, As was said earlier, we have to challenge what the Word of God says. So those books are going to be on the website. Uh, Just look for them. There'll be a link that will say Bibliography for End Times Forum. And if you want to order some of those books or look some of those books, we really encourage you uh, to do that.